morning. Good morning. I'd like to welcome you to uh, another Penn special session. This one, as uh, announced in your program, is called American Fiction and Poetry. Are they transposing themselves? And before I introduce the panel to you, the initial statement as it appears in your program, and then after introducing the panel, I, uh, I'm Richard Howard, I shall brood a little bit with you over what possibly that statement might mean or imply, and then we'll ask the members of the panel to, in alphabetical order, to respond to such notions if they wish, and then they'll talk to each other, and then we'll accept questions from the floor. The statement is, imaginative writing, usually taken as the writing of fiction and poetry, has in the last mm, 25 years presented the spectacle of an exchange between these two massive organizations. The novel, that is, appears to have invested far beyond its uh, initiating commitment to realism in those devices and strategies commonly associated with poetry. While American verse has become, with only a few, if vivid, exceptions, a language of spontaneity and a kind of naturalism of the self, a language in which fiction is quite at home. Now, while that settles in your mind, I'll just tell you who we are up here in alphabetical order. Raymond Carver, down at my far left, uh, born in Oregon in 1939, the author of several volumes of fiction, most recently Cathedral, and of four collections of poetry, most recently Where Water Comes Together with Water. Uh, on, my, on my immediate left, Allen Ginsberg, born in New Jersey in uh, 1926, um, who's in... Uh, considerable uh, volume of collected poems appeared this year. Uh, on my right but one, uh, replacing Louise Gluck, who is ill, uh, Cynthia MacDonald, uh, born uh, in, in New York, is that right? Yes, in 1928, with four collections of poems, including, most recently, Alternate Means of Transport. On my left again, but one, on the other side of Allen is Joyce Carol Oates, born in Detroit in 1938, the author of many novels and collections of fiction, and of five collections of poems. On my right again, all the way over at the end, is Kirkpatrick Sale, born in New York in 1937, author of five books of what we in this country have agreed to call non-fiction, uh, including most recently Dwellers in the Land, uh, a book that makes me feel that we can refer to it as non-fiction if we refer, let's say, to Thoreau as the author of non-fiction. And uh, finally, um, the, all the way, next to me on my right, Mark Strand, born in Nova Scotia in 1935, author of six volumes of poetry and a collection of short stories published this year, Mr. and Mrs. Baby. Now, um, 
We have, of course, in America, poets who write fiction, like David Wagoner or Terry Stokes or W.S. Merwin. We also have fiction writers who write and publish poetry, like Walter Abish or Reynolds Price or Grace Paley. We have a figure who is indeterminate, uh, who has been called, for instance, um, a great comic poet or a fabulist. I speak of Russell Edson, who is one of those people we, we don't know how to qualify or categorize. We don't know what to say about those pieces which seem to us so much like poetry, and yet they are certainly written in what we think of as prose. There is further what I might call the Sir Thomas Brown tradition in American literature as exemplified in, in the last 25 years by a figure like Edward Dahlberg or a figure like Alexander Theroux more recently. Um, furthermore, there are writers among us, and I'm trying to sort of thicken the pudding by mentioning figures who are not with me on the platform, who um, write what we call novels, though they are so emphatic in their, in their, in the distinction of their efforts from, from realism, from the determination of character uh, and plot that we are accustomed to in the novel, that um, they, they are almost always referred to with the tag poetic attached to them. Uh, figures like Barth and Bartholme, Gas and Gaddis, Sontag and Ozick are often referred to as being, I'm sure you're familiar with this rather discouraging tag, poetic novelists or fictionists or fabulists. Um, Perhaps I might say one more thing before asking our panelists to speak. Fiction since Flaubert, seems, that seems to be the crucial figure, the turning point or the, the hinge, seems to involve, um, uh, especially if we invoke certain grand European figures who are, who are still among us, and, or who have just recently died, like Calvin, Cal, uh, like Calvino, um, and uh, like uh, Beckett himself, uh, like Ernst Jünger in Germany. Uh, such figures um, seem to us to represent precisely this, what we might call, crisis of prose. Um, and uh, I, I don't think it's possible to think of the novels of Italo Calvino without remembering that some reviewer has said Invisible Cities was a poem, or this is a book that will delight readers of poetry. I think that's what T.S. Eliot used to say about, about Juna Barnes's book, Nightwood. Um, but fiction since Flaubert, with those numinous figures behind us or hovering over my, what I'm about to say, seems to involve the manipulation of certain adverbs like here and now, and the conjugation of certain verbs, like to be and to remember, uh, which seem or appear to cast us into the realm of what we fundamentally feel is, is not the realm of the novel, of prose fiction as we have known it since uh, Don Quixote up to 
um, let's say something like like Zola or Proust. And, and this is an honorable estate and not one that I wish to say is stale or dépassé or no longer in practice. Of course it is, and every once in a while an astonishing novel comes along and everybody says, realism is not dead. And um, we are all, I think, enlivened or enriched by that discovery. But uh, I think we're here today, and this particular panel is here today, because there are notions, and I think Kirkpatrick Sale must have a heavy burden here, because he must represent the notion that even fiction and what we so easily call nonfiction have seemed so often among us to, to, take pla to, to change places in the same way that the characteristics of American poetry and American fiction seem to have been reversed. At least it seemed to me that this was one way in which we could at least talk about American fiction and American poetry in some rather large and, and in-gathering way. So now I'd like to ask our, our six members of this panel to speak to this occasion. They each have microphones, which some of them must share, rather in the manner of the mythological creatures in uh, who have only one eye among them, but you can pass it back and forth, and and Ray Carver will speak first. No, no, no. Keep into it. No, it, maybe it's not on. It should be is not the same thing. This work. Thank you. Yeah. I hope this is all right now. Yes? I, I put these notes together last night. I'm, I'm not certain how closely they will, they will parallel the uh, rubric that, that Richard was talking about, but uh, with your permission, I will read a few things here. There are fiction writers who write poetry and poets who write fiction. I don't think there are that many writers, if any, who have a reputation and a following of equal or similar magnitude in both art forms. Many years ago, when I began to write, I was attracted, for one reason and another, to the shorter literary forms, poems and short stories. I think if I could have found anything shorter in those days than a one-page poem, I would have happily embraced it. But it was poems in the beginning, and after two or three years of bad poems, I began to write bad short stories. And in some time, around 1960, I think it was, I found in my mailbox on the same day a letter from one magazine accepting a story I'd written and a letter from another magazine accepting a poem. So I was hooked twice over. For a long while after this, several years in fact, I wrote an occasional poem or else, occasionally, a short story. I'd work on one or the other for a while, a short story, say, and then turn my attention to trying to write a poem, and then go back to my story, etc. But my time for writing was becoming more curtailed, severely limited, for the work that I could and wanted to do. And I remember making a very conscious decision to concentrate what abilities and attention I could muster to the writing of fiction, and short stories in particular. 
Thereafter, for many years, it was an, I was an occasional poet, a Sunday poet at best, and this condition persisted until two years ago at this time when I began to write poetry once more and poetry on a daily basis, poetry to the exclusion of nearly everything else in my life. Now, poems and short stories are not so very far apart, really. At least, I don't think so. It's my feeling that a poem and a short story bear an altogether closer relationship, say, than a novel and a short story. I'm thinking of the economy and compression and precision in most short stories and poems, and usually the more limited canvas or landscape involved as compared to that of the novel. But narrative is the real link that I see between poetry and fiction. Poems, the poems I'm most interested in at any rate, should be about something. Even shorter lyric poems are most often about something, finally, even if it's the evanescence of a mood or a transitory feeling. And the fiction that I most admire is about something, and it possesses, to a greater or lesser degree, a linear or narrative structure. There is a narrative pull as inexorable as gravity in the best fiction and poetry, or at least that fiction and poetry closest to my heart. And why should poems be written in a language that is different in kind and degree than that is employed by prose writers? I'm talking here of a literary or even specialized or precious language. There is a language of common discourse, the language we speak to each other in. Is there anything the matter with that language as the language for poetry? I said I used to write a short story occasionally and then put aside work on the story while I wrote a poem or two and then go back to the story or vice versa. This is not true these days. I can't work that way any longer. I'm incapable of writing poems now when I'm working on fiction. And when I'm writing fiction, I can't imagine having ever written a poem. The whole enterprise of writing poems seems bizarre, incredible, and impossible. For a year and a half recently, I wrote nothing but poems, except for an occasional essay, and I produced two books of poems in that time. When I was writing these poems, I didn't know if I would ever write another story, and that was fine with me. I simply didn't care. I was happy doing what I was doing, and I could have died happy. Now, just the opposite is true. I'm back to writing fiction again, and all that time I spent writing poems, that high, fine, happy time, seems like a dream to me now. Where do those poems come from, I wonder? I don't know. So I guess I'm saying that this whole enterprise, this dual enterprise, is still very much a mystery to me. And I hope I might hear some things here today that will clarify and shed light on this for me. Um, I want, before calling on Alan, to uh, sort of further complicate the issue by saying that within the area that we think of as specifically American poetry itself, there has um, been produced, especially in the last few years, a series of works which uh, astonish us by their by their relationship to what we had thought of as uh, the grand novelistic tradition. I'm thinking of things like the great long trilogy by James Merrill called The Changing Light at Sandover, 
or the more recently published Frederick Turner book, um, The New Land, New World, right. And um, even uh, a work like, let's say, Reflections on Espionage by John Hollander, which is an apparent um, entire spy novel uh, produced I as a series, a connected series uh, of um, reflective and discursive poems. Uh, the notion of character appearing in poetry seems uh, specifically not only the poet's own character, that autobiographical resonance that we somehow come to expect from poetry, but the, but the representation of others. Uh, and it's, it's with that in mind that I'm, I'm happy to call on Alan to speak because as uh, one feels so strongly with the appearance of a book like Kaddish of Alan's one, was aware that a poet was perfectly prepared and, and at ease in presenting to us another person, fulfilled and with the richness that we usually attribute to um, the novel. And I, I think most of us feel that way about the character of Naomi Ginsberg in, in that poem. Alan? Good morning. I'd like to begin by reading a poem related to what I want to present by Jack Kerouac, the 17th chorus from Mexico City Blues. But first, can you hear clearly in the back as well, or yes or no? Raise your hand if you cannot in the back. Well, perhaps come more forward. There's only two. There's only two. I'll try and speak closer to the mic. Is that better? 17th Chorus. Star-spangled kingdoms bedecked in dewy joint. Don't ignore other parts of your mind, I think. And my clever brain sends ripples of amusement through my leg nerve halls. And I remember the zigzag original mind of babyhood when you'd let the faces crack and mock and yak and change and go mad utterly in your night first mind reveries. Talking about the mind. The endless, not invisible, madness rioting everywhere. As we've noticed during this week, uh, with many eminent and experienced intelligences, we are all living in a state of great uncertainty, uh, ideological uncertainty, the very nature of the uh, conference itself, the imagination of the state and the imagination of the writer, which is which. Some identify their self and their consciousness with the state. Some identify their notion of who they are with some idea of self, but then nobody knows oneself. One doesn't know oneself, or who am I? Is he? Ancient question, in any case, a confusion of emotions, uh, panic for that, and, uh, some defensiveness and aggression to cover that. In my own case, I've been very active in the uh, circulating a petition to 
in support of Nicaraguan independence from American military pressure, and I'm not even sure whether that's right or wrong, uh, whether that's good or bad, whether I'll create chaos or resolve chaos with it, whether I'm condemning some Nicaraguans to permanent slavery or saving them from enslavement to the United States. To give a case in point, which I think everybody here has got ear of who've been attending the uh, politicization and generalization, at the same time, honest statement of social confusion given the subject, imagination of state and imagination of writer. So we all are sitting with our own panic, or if not panic, certainly with our own confusion. And those of us who are uh, sensitive to their own minds are aware of that confusion, acknowledge it, in fact, perhaps even make use of it as a ground for both public discourse and private thought or poetry, which is perhaps private thought in public space. So what to do with that confusion except acknowledge it and be inquisitive as to its texture inquisitive as to the texture of our own minds and begin to take stock of the elements of the confusion, the contradictions of our own minds, as Walt Whitman proposed. Do I contradict myself? Very well, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. John Keats proposed similar notion of poet when he spoke of Shakespeare and characteristic of great poetic mind as capable, as, as a, uh, open to what negative capability, the ability to, or the uh, capacity to, uh, to entertain contrary notions in the mind without an irritable reaching out after fact and reason. And the key word there I would say would be irritable. Certainly one would reach out after fact and reason, but if you reach out irritably, then you become the other dictator. So what to do with that confusion except to acknowledge our vulnerability, which is built into our condition on Earth, that is, we're born in bodies, and that in itself is a vulnerable situation. Mind wandering around in this doll of meat. Certainly there's some sense of uncertainty or uneasiness. Certainly no, no sense of permanent solidified security either in our body or our speech or our mind might be in speech if not body and mind some sense of security but so where to go for a ground where to establish a, uh, a, a, a some Archimedean point to begin as poet or as citizen or as lover or as someone on earth in 20th century, I think our sophistication in Europe and America had evolved to a point of beginning to inspect the mind itself and inspect the senses, inspecting the texture of mind, 
as Kerouac said, don't ignore other parts of your mind. And so poetry began to model itself on the nature of mind. At least this is my interpretation of the history of 20th century poetry or my, my relation to that history or my uh, working uh, ground or hypothesis for my own writing. And I believe for many friends or poets that I like and read so that poetry can be made by taking those elements of confusion, disparate elements and contradictory elements in the mind, discontinuities of consciousness, and notating them or assembling them in a one order or another, which will actually place in the public space the uh, sensation of consciousness, or at any rate, a model of that consciousness, including its discontinuities, contradictions, and its unborn nature. That is to say, you can't trace a thought to its womb. So in Buddhist terms, they speak of that as unborn, unborn mind, just like the universe. We don't know where it came from, nor do we know where a thought rises from or where it goes. There's the old poetic image from Japan of the thought vanishing like the imprint of a bird on the sky. And in, and in inspecting our uh, field of consciousness and trying to ground ourselves in the minute particulars of that field of consciousness, that is ordinary mind, what we experience all the time, the thoughts that pass through our head, the sight, sound, smells, tastes, touch, and thoughts of the six senses. In order to roll up a sum of the particulars, as William said, many poets came to the conclusion that it might be best to leave out ideas on the subject of our experience, but try to describe it or try to reproduce it by making use of minute particulars of the senses, what we see primarily and then what we hear, minute particulars of our own speech, making use of ordinary speech as well as ordinary mind, that is to say the rhythms of our everyday conversation, the diction and syntax of our uh, uh, speech forms and thought forms, and um, the uh, detail precisely presented clear detail of what we see, uh, beginning with small things. I think Williams's phrase was to roll up a sum of the particulars. So at the beginning of the century, or the, the, the first decades of the century, we had a number of uh, slogans or uh, what, uh, axioms uh, that the older uh, people who had to make this change from a uh, more rigid form or a, a 19th century form of verse and a uh, uh, diction which was worn out by overuse and a syntax which was not that syntax which we use when we're talking to our mothers. 
a literary syntax or a syntax that was inherited from by imitating other poets. So Pound <coughs> proposed, like Williams, who said no ideas but in things, Pound said the natural object is always the adequate symbol for some impalpable emotion or uh, sensation of the vast, let us say. The natural object is always the adequate symbol. And later Buddhist poetic theoreticians said, things are symbols of themselves. So that one might make a ground for poetry by beginning to record just what goes on in your mind actually. And trying to write from, uh, not trying to write a poem really, but just trying to be somewhat of a scientist or investigator, scanning your own consciousness, noticing things, and then noticing what you noticed. Finally, in a way, you could say it's simply noticing what you notice or adding another observer or uh, an observer consciousness to, to the uh, person walking around in your body and observing how you think and what thoughts rose when, maybe recollecting them or recollecting your thought rather than trying to invent a fine thought recollecting what thought rose on its own from the unborn because the mind is continuously active and the mind also is discontinuous so there's an endless variety of impression and generalization language flowing through the head pictures flashing somewhat like MTV the mind and MTV are not that dissimilar the sense of discontinuity and jumping from one image to another. And so poetry rose, in this, give it a, a class of poetry rose with that structure, jumping from thought to thought. And if we read William Carlos Williams's Patterson or Ezra Pound's Cantos with their idiogrammatic method, it is a question of uh, not following a narrative line, uh, not explaining your explanations, but presenting... Uh, sensation after sensation or image after image or picture after picture in precise detail and juxtaposing them as they are juxtaposed in the mind. So with Dadaism, surrealism, and even the naturalistic writing of the imagists, we arrived at something that looks very complicated but is actually just really simple-minded if it's read that way as merely a, a model of how do you think. This method of composition is, uh, provides a, uh, uh, a way of dealing with almost any situation, accepting the chaos of mind, accepting the confusion of mind, making use of the confusion of mind as the primary material, uh, rather than attempting to uh, resolve it ideologically uh, or, quote, aesthetically, unquote, in the sense of making it neat or making it a package or even making it satisfactory or even making it a poem. It might be important not to write poetry but simply to write, write your mind or write writing. Write your mind is a good uh, short way of saying it. Uh, Whitman began the process when he broke up the old form and actually did write his mind, and beginning with, I celebrate myself and sing myself for every part of me. What is it? How's the next line? 
I celebrate myself and think myself for every part of me as good belongs to you. I.e., we are all the same in the sense of the confusion of mind and, and having minds. So, um, I think that uh, uh, sums up my uh, proposal, which relates to the, uh, the only thing I would like to relate it to is that by presenting an uh, uh, accurate picture of actual, actual mind acting in public, by making a model of his own mind in public, the poet inadvertently and unintentionally serves a public function in displaying his mind and its imaginings as well as its sensational noticings in the public arena which is filled with, well, mind disguised or uh, uh, mind covered over in political language uh, or advertising language or war language, ideological language, which attempts to take all that stuff of mind and all that texture and put them in a can for pa packaging, selling, or bombing so that the service the poet renders is uh, one touch of na is the same as the old notion, one touch of nature makes the whole world kin. The uh, uh, a presentation of actual mind in public uh, then uh, uh, reveals the fakery or falseness of false mind, false language, false imagery, things that uh, of attempting to make up a public speech out of things you didn't really think of but would like other people think to think that you think of. So I think that's my point. I will exercise the chair's prerogative of saying that I never before realized how, how close Allen Ginsberg came to the late Paul Valery uh, in uh, his uh, under understanding of what poetry might be. And I, I stand illuminated or sit illuminated greatly by what you said. Our next speaker will be Cynthia McDonald. I think I just un <coughs> unplugged something, did I? Or, it's all right? Mm -hmm. As I uh, only found out that I was to be Louise Gluck a few minutes before the uh, panel began, as I only found out that I was to be Louise Gluck a few minutes before the panel began, uh, I have not prepared anything. It reminds me of fifth grade where we had something called extemporaneous speaking, where you were handed a slip of paper with something like cheese. <laughs> All cheese is made from milk or Florida. Ponce de Leon went to Florida, etc. So uh, it may flow a bit that way. Uh, as Richard Howard uh, mentioned, some of the writers whose work we have trouble designating as fiction or poetry, I thought of the first time I heard uh, Donald Bartholme read. Uh, he came to Sarah Lawrence where I was then teaching. And 
uh, although I knew his work, somehow hearing him read it made me ask, why is this not poetry? A question that I was brash enough to then ask him at the end of the reading. He paused and looked at me in a way that I now know well, as we're colleagues, uh, looked sort of down his beard at me and said, well, poetry is much too difficult to understand. Uh, My first thought was, poetry also pays very much less. <laughs> and that perhaps we do sometimes name things according to that. This conference also makes me think that poets are not expected to have continuous thoughts, as most of the panels are heavily populated by fiction writers. Have any of you wondered about that? Wondered why? I certainly have. I wonder if it's dollars, thoughts, words. We're supposed to be able to condense magnificently, so you would think that that would be the perfect reason to be on a panel. I'm sure that we'll all prove that that statement's absolutely wrong, uh, the poets and the fiction writers here. Anyway, uh, I've been interested for a long time in this particular question. Perhaps because I started, uh, I had a previous career as an opera singer, I feel that the lyric poem is always too confining. Although I love the confinement because opera is so excessive. You know, the gestures are always like this. They're never small. And what I want is both things at once. That large, expansive gesture and the very tiniest gesture that you would have to be in a film where the camera moves in and sees what your, your two fingers are doing. Uh, I think that I want to get both into my own work and that that is the work that interests me the most. Yesterday, some of you may have heard Jack Barth, and he used uh, the Valentine beer can sign, the three ring sign. He brought a can to show. I'm sure you all know it without seeing the can. I don't have one with me. But uh, if you imagine that sign, and this really addresses a bit, I think, what um, Allen Ginsberg was talking about. Um, at one point, he said something about leaving out the thoughts, though later he used the word thought a great deal. I certainly wouldn't want to leave out the thought. It seems to me that you could look at that sign as saying the unconscious part, the part that renders as well as we can, that gets as much as we can from that most mysterious place, the unconscious, and the conscious in another ring, and the world in another ring. And then if you make all the rings, you have overlapping parts of two of the rings in each one, but then you have that little nubbin at the center where they all overlap. And it seems to me that that is where I would most like to go. That is to have everything in there. It's impossible. Well, we all know that writing is impossible. That we are always trying to get something that we can never get. Impossible in that way. When we read others, sometimes it seems that they've done it. Um, 
And so that place seems to me a place where the lyric poem breaks its out of its bounds and becomes more than that, even if it remains a lyric, that we have a feeling of something that goes way beyond what that small space can provide. And where fiction has the disjunction, the condensation, the music of poetry. And so I look for those oppositions within each form, and then I'm very pleased when I find that. I I recognize it without ever going through this thought process. Only afterwards do I realize that that's what's there. A number of years ago, probably, it may have been 10, maybe more, I heard Richard Howard uh, talk about American poetry, and I have since seen him use this, um, the myth of Midas, as uh, an example of where American poetry is. That is, it has reached, it has perfected a certain uh, capacity, and that means that that kind of poetry is golden and shining and impervious if we want to use it as food or a bed or to show love that we will reach for the beloved and turn the beloved to gold and we must go to the river and wash it off. And I really, I hope Richard isn't holding his head because of some distortion of that uh, (laughs) summary. Are you, Richard? Yes. All right, good. Um, Anyway, whether I've distorted it or not, I suppose we could say in a, in a, in a Bloomsian sense, as, as Richard is one of my ancestors, I, if I have distorted it, I have made it my own uh, uh, under the anxiety of influence. And uh, I, I do feel that about American poetry. I feel that we have learned how to do something perfectly. As, say, Pope did in the 18th century, and we must go to the river and wash it off. And I think we're already washing. This was a number of years ago. Uh, We may be getting sort of strange creatures out of the wash. That is, we may be getting something part gold and part flesh. And I think we are. Um, I think some of these short fictions or expansive poems are often hybrids that haven't found the way of really merging gold and flesh, if you can, except in, what, fillings in teeth. Um, but that, that wish to have the narrative excitement and all the things that I've dis- tried to describe in, poet- in, in poetry and fiction, to have narrative excitement in poetry, to have those two things come together in a kind of no man's land Although, again, if I look at this Congress, could I say no women's land? Almost no women's land. Uh, and that I don't, I don't acknowledge as accurate at all. Uh, poets and women, I guess they are the most suspect and the most powerful, perhaps. And that's why we have to be careful how many we have of them in any panel. Thank you. I am not at all uh, distressed by the invocation of my figure, which was simply that we we seek to 
to rid ourselves of the Midas touch as often as we seek to acquire it. And we, we wish to, there is that part of the story that most of us don't know as well as the part in which the king acquires the gift of turning to gold anything he touches is when he begs Dionysus to rid him of the gift and is told that he may wash it off uh, in a certain stream and the stream will carry away the gold. It is the river Pactolus whose sands run gold to this day. Um, the notion that somehow in water, that is some inconstant element which will never remain the same, which will always change and never return, as we know about water, we, it does not uh, ever allow us to uh, invest ourselves more than once in the same place. That notion was my, my figure for American poetry and uh, one that I'm glad you, you, you invoked now. Uh, I'd like to call on the next member of the panel who is a poet, a fiction writer, and a woman, Joyce Carol Oates. Thank you. A poet, a fiction writer, and a woman in that order, I'm sure. Well, I've assembled a few notes. I think it's a very provocative panel, and I'm, I'm very interested in what my fellow panelists have been saying. Can you all hear me? Try this one, which is very, very strong. <laughs> it's probably only strong for you, Richard. <laughs> for the rest of us, it's curiously impotent. Yeah. Well, I've, I've assembled a few notes, which I'll, I'll more or less read. I have two theories about the genesis of art. The first is that it, it originates in play, in experiment, improvisation, and fantasy, and remains forever in its deepest impulse, playful and spontaneous, a celebration of the imagination, which I'm sure you know, is, is really universal in, in childhood and, and the child in all of us. The sec second theory, I think, is completely unrelated to the first, but seems more and more plausible to me as I grow older. The artist is born damned and struggles through his or her life to achieve redemption by way of art. That is, the artist believes he or she is born damned and struggles throughout life to make himself or herself believe that he is redeemed. Nobody laughed at that. I thought it was really very funny in a horrific Kafka in an absolutely you know, believable way that the artist is born damned and struggles to achieve redemption. It's like saying the artist is born a masochist, the nicest kind of person. You know, wind up on panels and having the pictures taken, you know, and so forth. Well, of the specific ways in which imaginative writing is organized, there are at least three that exert a very powerful appeal. The first is the narrative-driven, or the linear, the kind of trendy word, the linear, uh, the imitation of an action of which Aristotle speaks, in which man, and I guess Aristotle meant women also, when speaking of man, I hope, that uh, the human being is best expressed by way of action. And action is, in, in fact, a kind of mystery, is plot. The plot of a life is, in fact, a mystery. It may be the highest expression of the meaning of the life, but it is in some way not accessible to the person who is living the life, only to someone who may be imagined as observing it. 
So the narrative driven, the story, the plot, the action, then the another way in which writing is organized is centered around the image. And we all go through periods in our lives, and we will in the future, where a certain image exerts a powerful and absolutely mysterious and inexplicable appeal, where you're, you're thinking about something, you're haunted by some numinous image, often visual. The Nabokov spoke of having auditory hallucinations, but but usually for most of us they're visual, something that we can't explain that's on the threshold of consciousness that seems to be ri- trying to rise into consciousness. And the only way that we can deal with it is, is to put into some structure of art and, and write about it and keep writing and writing and writing about it until it achieves a kind of objective and in a way impersonal existence out there in the world and perhaps we can deal with it or we t- try to exercise it and move on. And, of course, the image-centered impulse, I think, is is very central to both prose and poetry, but probably uh, a certain kind of prose, what we call the Gothic novel, where the images, like the Frankenstein image, which arose out of an actual dream or semi-hallucination, that it just exerts this extraordinary appeal, and the, uh, the fuel or the energy of the writing derives from not understanding it. Then another way of organizing material is by way of the first-person voice. And everyone on this, this panel has done this um, beautifully, I think, in uh, wedding one's own voice and telling one's own story as if it were another's. And here I'm quoting Richard Howard, I, I hope not, not wrongly, in um, <coughs> the kind of dramatic monologue that I think can be done so beautifully where the voice is the author's voice, and yet not really. It's energized by, by another. These elements, of course, as I've been indicating, really cut across both prose and poetry, and I would not suggest even that the linear narrative is specifically limited to, to prose, since in its earliest manifestations, poetry was, was epic and did tell stories, as we all know. My own, my own writing life is divided not, not equally between prose and poetry, since uh, prose for me, especially the novel, is the medium of otherness, it always necessitates the creation of a complete world, sometimes contiguous with but never identical with my own world. It's this continuous strain of creation. It's very exhausting to create another world, a counter-world. For those of us who live in Princeton, New Jersey, the counter-world has to be at least as populated and, and exciting and uh, arcane and baroque and so forth and dazzling as the external world. So I think people who live in Princeton are inclined to be all, all the more baroque in creating counter-worlds to do with that, that so-called real world. But it's an, for me an impersonal enterprise and populated with personalities definitely alien to my own. I never write confessional prose. I'm, I'm really not, I'm not, I suppose, interested in it and probably not, not able to do it. I think along Emily Dickinson's lines, you'll tell all the truth, but tell it slant, success and circuit lies. Then for me, poetry is the exact reverse. It's a medium of first-person expression. It's intimate and immediate, if not spontaneous in fact, it is spontaneous in intention. And I only write poetry, or in fact rewrite it. Most of my activity in poetry is is rewriting rather than than writing. I, I think... This is probably true with most poets, that to get 
something out there is just to begin the whole process of, of delight and terror and re revising and seeing what one has and the kind of nugget of uh, some worth. I can only write poetry, I read poetry all the time, but I can only write poetry about eight weeks of the year. I go through a cycle that's so exhausting, it just burns itself out. And I, I speak with my poet friends during this time, I'm just amazed that they can write poetry all the time because it's just so completely exhausting. And my friend Jim Richardson, who's a fine poet, simply said, well, we only write about one hour a day. When you write prose, you can get in there for 14 hours a day, you know, just exhausted. <laughs> but to, to think of writing poetry that many hours a day is to, is to think of the madhouse, you know, be, be carted away. So during that period, I'm given over really to what I think of as the mystery of poetry. Like Ray Carver, I can't imagine a time when I did write prose, and it just seems like a, a, an alien language or, or sensibility that I can remember, but I can't really imagine doing ever again. I go around telling my friends I'll never write another novel, and I'm just, you know, completely so alien and so foreign. I can't remember the impulse, and it's, um, it's very mysterious. And that cycle burns itself out. One seems to exclude the other. I guess it must relate to antithetical movements of the soul. In other people, though, I think these impulses um, complement one another and, and are miraculously wed. Thank you. I notice somewhat to my astonishment, not despair, but astonishment that uh, the separation, uh, which I had merely called an exchange between the energies of prose and the energies of poetry, uh, and which I thought I had located uh, in American writing, uh, do not seem to function from within for these writers, who speak still as if when they wrote prose, they knew they were writing prose, and when they wrote poetry, they knew they were writing poetry and that these, these energies or devices or principles could not be exchanged, as I thought from reading from outside, that they could. I'd like to ask our next speaker uh, a particular question to, in a sense, spur him into song, as Yeats said. Um, at, in some of the short stories in Mr. and Mrs. Baby, Strand's Oh, it's, it's not Strand's turn, it's Sale. Uh, sale comes before Strand, yes, alphabetically. I'm sorry. Let me, uh, let me retract my immediate remarks and uh, pedal backward to Kirk, and about whom I want to say that uh, he has to uh, function here as the, a special kind of figure, one that I'm very honored to have with us. That is, someone who will, in a sense, mediate between the notions of uh, what in, in school we used to call the difference between make-believe and real. I went to a progressive school where in, in our uh, rest periods, the librarian gave us a choice every day between what she called, or so I heard, uh, stories that were maple-leaf or stories that were real. And I, over the years, have always preferred maple leaf uh, to uh, reality. And uh, I, it is that disjunction, that curious uh, division, that I, that I want Kirk to, to uh, brood on for. Thank you, Richard. I find when you read the dates that we were 
born in that I am the youngest panelist here, and that's no doubt why you overlooked me. Uh, I appreciate your remembering my existence at the last moment. Among the many dances that could be done to the music of this theme that Richard has so artfully put before us, I would like to present just two, two short, quick steps, uh, uh, shuffles even, uh, in response. First, on this matter of transposition of uh, fiction into poetry, vice versa. It seems to me that it certainly is true that poetry is trending toward prose, uh, and it is about prose in, in its general sense that I am particularly concerned, uh, if not exactly fiction. Uh, poetry trending toward prose not merely in its language, but in its very style and form. A marriage of two art forms that has gone so far that has even produced a bastard child goes by the name of prose poetry. A phrase that has always seemed to me an oxymoron on the level of military intelligence <laughs> and Italian government. Uh, 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 prose poetry uh, seems to me like thinking that you could have a, a symphony sculpture or a ballet painting. Uh, it is a phrase I am inclined to believe that was thought up by someone who probably did not know the difference between a horse chestnut and a chestnut horse. In any case, uh, though, the intrusion of prose into poetry is a process all too apparent uh, in our century. But I must say that I don't find much evidence of a trend in the opposite direction, that of uh, poetry into prose uh, or into fiction. And certainly not in the work of the newest generation of American writers, our, our current crop. Uh, now, obviously there are notable exceptions in the last 25 years of prose <coughs> stylists who have borrowed not only some of the devices and strategies, but the very language uh, that we associate with poetry. And I think immediately, of course, as interestingly Cynthia did, uh, of my very dear friend who describes himself as the ringmaster of this Congress, Donald Barthelme. Now, uh, Donald has stories uh, that are actually falsely presented to us in the block rigidities of prose uh, on the page, when in fact they would be much more appropriately offered with the cadences and the spacings of poetry. But he is, I would think, an exception. It seems to me that, speaking only of this country's uh, literature, the trend in the past decade uh, or so is in the direction not of poetic discourse, poetic themes, or poetic language uh, in fiction, but rather of something quite different, of suburban shopping mall realism and down-home, back-to-the-roots folk art in fiction. Often, in fact, in this current crop of fiction, a bluntness and a sparseness that 
turns its back deliberately on the available elegance and music and intricate play of poetry. Uh, and here I would, uh, I think, immediately uh, of the younger brother of Donald Barthelme, Frederick Barthelme, uh, who, who his older brother has permitted into uh, the same profession. Uh, and Frederick has made a name for himself. Well, actually, half of it's Donald's name, uh, of course, but uh, a name for himself as a spokesman of this new generation, this current generation of spare, matter-of-fact prosodists uh, concerned with uh, one-stop, two-tone, three-piece, four-on-the-floor, five-speed, six-pack, 7-Eleven matters for their fiction. Having said that, though, I do wish to offer my second quick, <coughs> quick step for you, which is more in agreement with this notion of uh, the transposition of uh, fiction and, uh, and poetry, prose and poetry. Because what I think this theme here points to is a general truth, a profound truth of our times, and it is not gainsaid or denied by this aberration of the current crop of novelists that I have just spoken of. If the lines have grown blurred between poetry and prose, this is merely a particular example of the general 20th century artistic phenomenon, the destruction of form, of genre, of classification, a fuzzing of distinctions and an elimination of lines, indeed, the dismantling not only of standards, but the very idea of standards and their acceptance. Now some, and uh, I believe I am sitting next to uh, some, may call this liberatory, the final free release of art from the fetters of <coughs> convention and tradition and order. But I would argue, rather, that it is not uh, so much liberatory as chaotic. It is uh, as artless as a mudslide, a signal not of the freedom of artistic expression, but rather the bewilderment and confusion of a gargantuan and overcomplexified world, and the exact loss of a genuine authenticity within this world of artistic expression, a bewilderment and confusion reflected in the art as in the world around. Robert Frost once said uh, something to the effect that writing free verse was like playing tennis with the net down. Back task of hard work, precision, care, and delicacy by which significant art is born. By blurring these distinctions, ignoring the dictates of those distinctions, we are led to the easy, sloppy, often careless, and ultimately uninteresting byways of hackery and cheapness. <coughs> this century has been notable so far it's for its blurring of, of those lines, uh, the lines between cacophony and music, between wallpaper and painting, between junk and sculpture, between gibberish and poetry. 
even, God forbid, in our unisex uh, society between man and woman. Now, I do not believe it has been richer or wiser for this blurring of lines. Uh, I do not, in the same way, believe that it has been richer or wiser for blurring the lines between poetry and prose or fiction. I'd express my hope that the next century does a better job uh, than this one has done. The French, to conclude, uh, have, as usual, uh, an excellent way of putting it, as apt for the distinction necessary for art as it is for the distinctions inevitable in society. Vive la différence. Thank you. I think there, uh, on the panel itself, and certainly if not, there are for me some responses to Mr. Sale. But before we get to them, I will now return to my uh, question that I wanted to put to Mr. Strand. Um, in his uh, book of fables, emblems, tales, stories called Mr. and Mrs. Baby, uh, the last piece, which is called The Killer Poet, uh, concludes with a passage of English prose which seems to me as luminous, as disciplined, as um, measured in its approach upon the ear and the mind as uh, any language I uh, know of that's been produced in the last 35 years. When you wrote that, and as you wrote it, were you aware that you were, or, or even concerned, that you were writing what we call prose as opposed to what we also call, and, and you have produced so much of, that is, not only poetry but verse? Well, I was, uh, I was trying to write good prose, uh, as I see it. Uh, I was trying to write as beautifully as I possibly could, uh, something that I wasn't able to do always as a poet, feeling the constraints of an inherited plain style. Uh, it's a long history. I mean, the... Uh, the restrictions that a poet labors under uh, in the 20th century are roughly uh, are, are inherited restrictions. They're not uh, restrictions that have come about in the last 25 years. They're inherited from our Puritan ancestors. Uh, somebody whistling? No, it's the system. Oh. I was tired of writing a poetry of paraphrase, a poetry that approximated narrative, a poetry that uh, convinced uh, the reader by virtue of its sincerity, or its supposed sincerity, its simplicity and directness. And when I wrote the last part of uh, The Killer Poet, I, uh, I had, it was the last thing I I wrote for that book of stories, or whatever they are. Uh, I, I wish to be as free of, of those constraints as possible. My, my feeling about poetry and fiction is that they're not particularly well written. Uh, in that, they uh, have something in common. Uh, 
and not particularly adventurous when one considers what's gone on in European fiction and poetry. Uh, I'm going to read you something uh, that was written 50 years ago, and I don't think the situation has changed any. Most contemporary novels are not really written. They obtain what reality they have largely from an accurate rendering of the noises that human beings currently make in their daily simple needs of communication. And what part of a novel is not composed of these noises consists of a prose which is no more alive than that of a competent newspaper writer or government official. I believe that's true. That was T.S. Eliot writing in his, in his preface to Juna Barnes' Nightwood. I believe that uh, uh, the state of poetry is pretty much the same. It's very hard to tell the difference for the most part. Now, there are exceptions both in fiction and poetry uh, between uh, the two. Um, even when you heard Allen Ginsberg reading Jack Kerouac, it's interesting. Uh, it was, it's a version of plain style where nothing is subordinated. Walt Whitman is plain style. I mean, everything we have, with the exception of very few high Orient poets who have taken their, their cues from Milton or Spencer, uh, are plain style. And they've given themselves over to the language of poetry. In our schools, we have writers' workshops, poetry workshops, in which uh, the, any prosodic tradition is sidestepped and poems are talked about uh, strictly in a narrative way. What should follow? You start with A, then you go to B, then you go to C. And what we have is the teacher indicating the direction that the poem should take. Uh, in other words, helping the student create a little narrative. And the student goes home to correct his poem and what he does is he writes a paraphrase of what the teacher has set in class. And this seems to sidestep the very thing that makes poetry poetry. That's why so much of it sounds alike. These are poems about what poems could be. If there was some sense of measure or some idea of writtenness. Now, I didn't do it in my fiction, but what I would like to have done would be to have made each sentence terminal, uh, have each sentence assert itself as an invention uh, of its own. I mean, a total invention and not be subordinated to a plot. I like reading novels where I have to figure out what's going on, um, where the notion of time is eradicated, say, in the Death of Virgil. I mean, it seems to be the most adventurous novel we have. I mean, nobody tries that anymore. Mm. Well, a few people then try it. Um, so, I mean, I have nothing more to say. Well, in that case, uh, I, I would urge you to consider a book like Carpenter's Gothic. No, if no, I wasn't talking about anyone on the panel. No, 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 Mr. Gaddis is not on the panel, but Carpenter's Gothic is oh, a, is oh, a, is a novel far. which does some of, undertakes yeah. some of the things which you, in talking about Brock's Death of Virgil, are uh, urging upon us. Um, now, uh, yeah. I, I do want to give the other members of the panel a chance to respond to what has been said on the panel, 
And then I think when they have finished, if they finish among themselves, then there, there will be a chance for questions from the floor. But uh, I'm going to run down the same list in the same order. Uh, Ray, do you want to, uh, to speak to the, what you've heard in, in some uh, outraged and premonitory fashion? <laughs> It's not on, huh? Try, try this one. Is it so difficult yeah, to have more mics than one? It should be. I have water. All right. Uh, Ray, try this one. Hand him this one, would you? If you put it over there, it won't work anyway. Hello, yes. Well, there are uh, seven of us on the, on the panel, and there, there have been, it seems to me, um, more or less seven, seven different points of view expressed here. Uh, uh, I, I don't think I would be quite as negative uh, about the situation as, as Mr. Sales seems to be. I don't think that we're living in an age of artless mudslide and that our work is, is an expression of our horrible confusion and, 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 and chaos. Um, I suppose that's the, uh, the uh, strongest reaction uh, I have to what I've heard here this morning. Um, I do see a difference in the poetry and the fiction that is being written these days. and. Uh, Quite the contrary uh, to, to some of what I've heard here today. I think that we're living in a in a very good time. I think this is a good time for poets and for fiction writers. I think there's a there's a burgeoning, um, and why not? I'm I'm all for it. Um, I I think the uh, Doomsday Bell has been rung at you know in, in every century. Uh, 18th century, the 16th century, they were saying, you know, what a, a terrible state uh, art literature was in, and uh, and yet uh, the same people who are who were not writing in, in a particular form in one in one in one particular time were uh, doing something quite different, and uh, maybe 50 years later, uh, uh, this was the. The, uh, the new work. This was looked on as the new and original work. Um, so, but I, I, I'm not at all negative or, or pessimistic about what's what's happening these days. I read um, lots of poems and lots of poets, and including the work uh, of the people on this panel, and, and none of them sound alike to me, uh, frankly. So I think you know there are um, many um, many rooms in our father's mansion, so to speak, and and uh, and there's there's room for everybody, and uh, mm. and uh, this is a, it's 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 wide open, and I, and I say that's good. I mean, I, you know, um, 
more power to us all. Um, Alan, here. The standard or measure that is requested is available in ordinary mind. The standard is human. The nature of our minds themselves, our own natural consciousness, has an order. There is a question of the discriminating wisdom in observing the mind and observing that order and then making artworks out of, uh, or notating that order and then the artwork rises naturally from that. There is no need to put mind and the phenomenal world into Robert Frost's net or whoever invented the net or merely confine it to use of that particular net. The field is much larger. Uh, a prefabricated order, which I s believe I heard called for, or a, a, that is a 19th century prefabricated linear order, I think eliminates significant information. I would say poetry is maximum information in minimum number of syllables. And that maximum information in minimum number of syllables ordinarily arrives at music without effort. The effort, any effort is in the discriminating wisdom in eliminating the unnecessary syllables and the vowels follow properly with uh, good sound and uh, in exquisite order as in the work of Christopher Smart in Rejoice in the Lamb. Uh, the the uh, prefabricated stereotype that uh, uh, Kirk Sales disliked and uh, parodied doesn't reflect the actual consciousness of the writer, but a limited gamut of his attitudes. Like there's a contemporary new wave kid phrase, copying an attitude. The prose that he is objecting to just cops an attitude rather than presents the full mind. So I would say we have to examine our minds and the mind's impressions of the phenomenal world to discover an order already existent and if we dislike that order, we are able to alter that order by recognizing obsessive patterns if the order is self-destructive. Prosodies, or prosody, or rhythmic patterns rise naturally out of the adventure of notation. Oh, and I'd like to read, read uh, a couple of very brief examples. Uh, The Laundry Area by Philip Whelan. Each time I hang up a washboard, the slenderest thread of cold water runs down my wrist and into my armpit without wetting my clothes. Well, I've taken up too much time, so. <laughs> Alphabetically, I come next, and uh, I discover, and I, I want to make one uh, comment or observation on what Kirk said, uh, he offered uh, as almost the, the last violation of the noble and Apollonian principles that he wished to see observed, uh, the discovery that the differences between men and women were for God's sake not being observed. I should point out that this is the first thing 
that we should observe, not the last, and that it is perhaps among the most interesting observations or failures to make observations among us, that what Kirk is calling differences are the consequences of culture, not of nature, and that he is substituting culture for nature over and over again in that long litany of outrage and violation that he was putting before us. And uh, I think, uh, just on the one level, that some of the exploration and uh, rather vivid advance that has been made by our writers in this question of the differences between and the similarities among the sexes is precisely what perhaps this kind of Congress uh, can and, and may address itself to. Um, Cynthia? I'm disconcerted uh, that uh, I think both um, all three panelists who have written the most fiction and poetry, that is Joyce, Carol Oates, Raymond Carver, and Mark Strand, who have really been wor working in both genres for a long time, um, make such distinctions between them. Uh, Mark, perhaps not so much, but in a different way. The other two seeming to have these very separate worlds. Uh, and I'm most concerned that words like poetic and ephemeral, uh, confessional, were applied to the poetry side that seems to me the, the least interesting part of what poetry can, can be. Uh, it's, it's in the opposition of what naturally falls to each field that it seems to me the most life and vigor comes. Now this is, uh, of course, a very uh, nervy statement because although I have written a small amount of fiction, I don't have the credentials to uh, to say, you see, it shouldn't be divided this way. Look, I have divided it another way, and this is, is wonderful and much better. I can't say that. But as a reader, I, I do feel that way. I wonder at Kirk's uh, statement that so few fiction writers have succeeded in, uh, in bringing the strengths of poetry into their fiction uh, into what I would call, uh, what I have called the no man's land where the two things really come together as I believe they do in Mark Strand's work. Um, and I wonder, we've called this American fiction and poetry. We, by that we mean United States fiction and poetry. But it seems to me that uh, Marques, for example, really has brought those things and in a way that we have not talked about that is not in the smallness, in the capturing of the ephemeral, in the lyrical or poetic, but in the sense of form, repetition, um, uh, conjunction and disjunction, and many other adjectives that you can provide for yourselves. Uh, and we could go to other parts of the world, I think, and make much longer lists, even in the large form, 
not just in the small one. Is it only interesting when this happens in the uh, in fiction in the really short, condensed forms? Is that what we want to see in this uh, in this area of of merging? Uh, no, I not not uh, I don't. And just to finish, um, to go back to the male. Uh, female statement, which I would very much like to fight about, but won't because I don't think it's really the subject of this inquiry. Um, it seems to me that indeed out of male and female comes often, sometimes, a baby, and that that would be what we'd aim for. Mm. No. Um. Cynthia, you've lost me. No, uh, no, I refuse to have you shake your head uh, that by, by saying poetry and fiction, uh, if, if one were to say these are distinct as male and female male are distinct in certain ways, they are endlessly variable, but when put together, a new life, oh God, what words fail me, comes out, appears, and that that is really what we're talking about. Nonetheless, one usually with male and female characteristics. What? Thank you very much. Um, may I uh, pass the microphone to Joyce Carol Oates? I think it only works for Richard Howard. No, it's working. Well, I have all sorts of responses, but I, I guess I'll just be very brief. It sometimes seems very discouraging, or perhaps it's just quixotic, to continue to be a writer of either prose or poetry. And most of us in the Penn Congress, you know, aspire to that end, one or the other. And um, always be reading in the in the public media or hearing on, on television or in some public forum that the novel's dead. Poetry is terrible when a mudslide or we're at the bottom of the mudslide or something, and that lines have been blurred and distinctions between male and female, alas, you know, are, are, are finished forever. And I don't know how we keep going. I think if we, <laughs> we must be really, truly no noble masochists. We just keep on going with this um, fantasy notion that perhaps we have really not been read that the media people are addressing themselves to phantom books, phantom writers, that they have in fact not you know, read the, the elegant and eloquent and, and marvelous writing of somebody who's in, in the back row of this, this room, you know, that these sweeping generalizations are very hurtful. I think they are meant to be provocative and, and stimulating and, and perhaps even in a way playful, but as they come across with numbing regularity, um, we, we read them in the New York Times book review and, and elsewhere, it is truly, and perhaps someone will agree with me, very discouraging. Thank you. Uh, in my order, I must now pass the microphone to Kirkpatrick Sale. You must. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Uh, I, th I think I have been uh, misunderstood. I'm not saying that there is no great art, Raymond. I am not saying that art is in a terrible state. Not that at all. 
uh, and uh, there is much great art going on. What I am saying is that it is the blurring of art forms that seems to me the sign of a confused and gargantuan society and that it is that, it is in, in those uh, areas where this blurring occurs that I think that we find the mudslides. Which is not to say that there is not much great art being produced and I certainly would not in any way want to discourage that uh, fountain of words, Joyce Carol Oates. Uh, that would be a terrible thing for me to, to do. I want indeed to encourage her Now, uh, I would like, in the time that remains us, to accept some questions and statements from the floor. Have I? Oh, sorry. Okay, I just... Uh, you may. Okay. I just want to clarify some of the things I might have said in a fairly jumbled way because I didn't come prepared. I was told not to. I had no written statement. I just feel simply that good poetry and fiction, in good poetry and fiction, one feels the pressure of language. That both, that language alone provides an escape from or the power to transform banality. I would eradicate the difference between poetry and prose where within my power but I would do it away from narrative, if that can be done. The only thing, what I was saying before is that we seem to, in merging the two, uh, move closer to narrative. That poetry, when it uh, moves towards fiction, adopts simply the narrative mode. And I would, I would hope uh, that uh, fiction, as it moved closer to poetry, uh, would adopt uh, or would, uh, well, move towards a lyric character that is no longer easy to identify with poetry. You see, I mean, we, it, we say that, well, this is poetic prose, but against what standard? I mean, where is, the, uh, where is the poetry that this prose reminds you of that's so poetic? It seems rather plain to me. And no one says uh, in, a, uh, in a laudatory way that this poetry is getting uh, comfortably, nicely close to fiction because that would strip it of its lyric character. I'm just saying that there, uh, all, and also I'm saying that there are solutions we haven't dreamt of. And uh, so far, I mean, there are many good writers in America, and they're sitting here. And uh, it seems that for all the good writers there are, the, the level of adventure, adventurousness is not high. There should be, we've lost the, uh, the impulse or the, or the desire to experiment extravagantly. That's all. Uh, I think I mentioned in my opening remarks, in addition to what was written in the, 
in the program, uh, some of the writers who struck me as being uh, extravagant, grandiose, and venturesome. And I'm, I'm sorry to hear that Mr. Strand doesn't feel that they, they fill his bill. Or well, even they do, but they're not, they're, they're just a few of them you mentioned. Yes, I only mentioned a few. There should I, be 50 or 60. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, uh, in, in, I would like now, having seen Mr. Popa and Mr. Miwash leave, and both of them would have been useful figures for me to call upon within the audience right now, especially Mr. Miwash, whose work is so, uh, as we have it in translation, is so extraordinarily divided between uh, the poetry and prose in books like The Land of Oro and The, uh, the uh, Native Realm. Uh, and, and in the extraordinary poetry that has made him a world figure. I would have liked to insist, but I, in, in being fair to the panel, he, he escaped me. So before anyone else escapes me, I'd like to accept a question or a comment from the floor or a statement if you will move to the microphone. But I would also like to urge you to be specific and, if possible, brief. I will be. My name is uh, Helen Porter, and I'm from Newfoundland, Canada. Uh, I'd like to congratulate the panel for a very provocative presentation, especially Cynthia MacDonald, who had to fill in at the last moment and was so eloquent. Uh, I'm familiar, very familiar with the work of Joyce Carol Oates, just beginning to be familiar with the work of Raymond Carver, and I have to blame him for keeping me awake the last few nights, uh, although I've only met him this morning. Uh, <laughs> could, could we have the, the statement or the question? Yes, okay. Uh, the question first uh, for Mr. Carver. Uh, he spoke about the uh, high-flying happy times with poetry. I think I can understand what he means there. Uh, I would like to ask him, does he have low-flying sad times with prose? And if you'd like to speak to us briefly about that, and if I may, uh, comment on Mr. Sale. Uh, as a person who wrote an article uh, called Why Can't a Man Be More Like a Woman, I obviously disagree with him. And I would like to ask him the question, a question that I'm sure nobody can answer. He referred to the next century, hoping that it would be better, it would develop the kind of writing that he would like to see. And my question is, will there be a next century? Raymond? Hello? Yes. In answer to your, to your question, uh, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll try to answer it as best I can, uh, there are times when I'm writing prose, I don't think I ever have a low period, if that's what you mean, um, um, a low-flying period. There are times when I'm working on a short story that it is just that work, but maybe once every four or five stories, something will happen in that short story that um, makes me know that this is why I want to do this more than anything else in the world. And that, that feeling does not always persist and stay with me that long, but it is enough of a rush that it makes me want to continue working on that story. With the poems, um, the poems usually come quicker, but the work on the poems 
the, 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 rough, the first draft of the poem will come quicker, uh, but the work I put in on the poem is uh, no less than the work I put in on the short story. But when I'm working, and working day after day on poetry or fiction, it is like um, to, to uh, quote John Ashbery, he calls it the paddle wheel of days. And sometimes I can get so involved I don't even know what day of the week it is. And that's wonderful when that happens. You're, you're somehow with the angels, I think. Um, I suppose you can write a, one can write a short story or an essay for that matter, or a poem, and feel this is not so good as it could be, but is there any way that I can make it better? Maybe I can put it aside for a while and go into something else and come back and look at it again. Uh, but there is a moment writing that poem or that story, if one is lucky, that that is a magic moment, maybe, without putting, wanting to make too much out of that. Uh, but it's a happy time, and it, like, like, like an addiction of some sort, it will keep bringing you back and back and and, and back once more. Um, where where are you? I, I hope I hope I. Yes. Okay? And and Kirkpatrick, did you wish to speak to the second part of that question? No, I believe that was a comment, and uh, the question is, of course, unanswerable. Other statements from the floor? Yes, uh, uh, would you, Rachel, go to the mic or take this one? My name is Rachel Haddis. I'm a poet from New York. I have a sprinkling of quick questions um, to Mr. Sale on the origin of the prose poem. I believe, Richard, you would know it's either Baudelaire or Nerval, somewhere along in there that the prose poem as a term was coined, and I think that his idea that it's an oxymoron doesn't seem totally right. There's perhaps not time to go into this, but it does have a history. It's not some ridiculous recent blurring of forms. I have three questions to Mr. Strand. What does he mean by the poetry of paraphrase? This was in the first part of his talk, the unprepared part. Secondly, why is plain style such a dirty word, especially in view of his own early poems? And thirdly, since he speaks with such contempt of the process of poetry workshops, I would love to know how he himself teaches poetry. Okay. Well, uh, what was the first? Uh, oh, the poetry of paraphrase. Well, I can answer that. Uh, I tried to describe it in, I guess, in a bumbling way. Um, the poetry of paraphrase has grown out of the, uh, the number of poetry workshops that there are. Given an absence, uh, given the, the fact that people write in free verse, there is very little to talk about when examining a poem, but how a poem develops plot-wise. Now, the teacher in a workshop will generally restate the poem in a slightly clar uh, clarified way for the student poet. And the class will, uh, will offer comments and suggestions, and the poem will become clearer. Uh, it will become a statement that doesn't necessarily bear much relation to, I mean, a, any genre, 
it's merely a, a statement. It could be prose very often, um, although it's treated as if it were poetry. And I think that the, what results is a poem that anticipates the clarifying uh, guidance of the professor. And since so many poets in America are graduates of poetry workshops, many of the poets under 40, say, it seems to be uh, the poetry of paraphrase. Uh, now the plain style is a difficult, uh, I mean the plain style has been with us a long time. I mean it came here with the Puritans and in, the, in, uh, in, in uh, reacting to the university style, wrote a kind of sermon that was uh, a sermon easily paraphrased. Uh, a sermon uh, that could not lose its, uh, its listeners. And it's, uh, we've, had, we've placed a value on plain talk or plain style or the language of the common everyday man since then. Uh, we've always, all of us, whether we're poets who have admittedly a very small readership, wish to address multitudes. And uh, this is one of the reasons we have chosen the common denominator of everyday speech. Um, I have nothing against the plain style except that it's been in dominance so long and has given us a very reduced notion of what poetry can be along with the development or the, our allegiance to a plain style is a notion that only through plain style or direct speech can we be sincere. We don't realize that sincerity as we write is a pose like any other. You assume the role of the sincere poet or fiction writer when you write. It's a, something you choose to do. You write at being sincere when you're sincere. Uh, it's not uh, something that's delivered, you know, uh, automatically because you use the plain style. Now, I mix my teaching. I teach literature as well as workshops. So I would if I could teach literature all the time, but I'm not qualified. I have no advanced degrees, you see. And besides, I would be in competition with people a lot smarter and better educated than I am. Thank you, Mark. Uh, there are other statements. I think there's one coming down. For, where, did you wish to uh, make a question and get to the mic? Okay, fine. Um, my name is Sonia Pilsner, and I'm an American novelist. And when you talk about the lack of experimentation and adventurousness in fiction, I'm surprised that no one has mentioned the crisis in publishing and how people who attempt to write experimental or adventurous novels become marginal or mid-list, which means even if you do get published, you're not going to be distributed, you're not going to be reviewed often, and um, so it has, it has put, and I would really like to know what you think about um, what we can do about um, the effect of publishing on the quality of writing that's being published, and when you talk about mall writing, it's what, it's what the market once. Well, I would like to ask two people on the panel to answer that, Joyce and Kirkpatrick. Not answer it, but address themselves to it. Well, it's, it's a very good question. I think probably at the pan 
on a panel like this, we ought to be talking about realistic things as well as I ideals. But I think that the problem is not in publishing, that is publishers, so much as it is in the reading public. If a publishing house brings out a book and prints, let's say, in a kind of excess of wild hope, you know, 20,000 copies, of, of which 1,000 are shipped out and sold, it's not likely the publishing house will be excited about doing that again and very many times because there's just as a point where the warehouses get you know, over, over stuff. So I think that when we, we talk disparagingly, and I'm afraid we all do it without really thinking what we're, we're saying, we talk disparagingly about publishing houses as if they were platonic essences or demonic essences, but in fact we're talking out of, out of a kind of refusal or reluctance to admit that it's the reading public and it may even be us. I, I have friends who buy lots of books and read a good deal. I also have friends who don't buy very many books, who don't support their, their own world, so to speak. They spend a lot of time renting video cassettes. And I think we all probably know people like this, and, and these are sometimes the very people who do complain. Of, one has to think of that um, wonderful passage in Thoreau's Walden. Thoreau, as you know, printed his own book and did not sell very many copies. I think he had 300 copies left, and mo most of his library was his own book. But yet Thoreau was able to say that um, we don't want to be in a position of the Indian who made pots. He made these pots, took in baskets. You're right. It could have been pots. Today it would be pots that people were tossing or something. But he made these baskets and took them around door to door and then was very miffed that people did not want to buy them, as if his having made them should have necessitated a buyer. I think that's probably a very important truth there about the uh, quality of the American <coughs> audience uh, reflected in the quality of the American publishing houses. But inasmuch as uh, I am essentially ignorant, uh, I would like, uh, if you will all indulge me, to uh, call upon uh, an editor at a major American publishing house uh, to see if she might like to give some answer to that question. It is uh, my wife, Faith Sale. Murder. Not a put-up job. In indeed, I'm going to usurp this uh, moment to say that I am someone who, quite a number of years ago, first learned feminism from one Kirk Sale. And I think he ought to take this opportunity to explain that when he wants the difference between men and women to exist, I think he means in the sense that we don't want whites to write like blacks, blacks to write like whites, southerners to write like northerners, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, my interpretation of what he meant, and I, I hope I'm not alone, is that women's voices, perceptions, and general attitudes about things are different from men's, and it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be equal and equally heard, but they should not have to be interchangeable. As far as the publishing question, I, I feel very deeply about all of it, and I think Joyce answered it about as well as one could. But it may indeed be that uh, if, as Kirk pointed out, he's the youngest, although I think he's the youngest, but one, I think Joyce beats you on that, it's still uh, 
there's nobody born later than sometime in the 30s on this panel, and that's pretty reflective oh, no, of who. <laughs> no, since the 30s. Well, born what? before the 30s, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> yes, that's what I'm saying. I'm talking about someone born 40s, 50s, oh, right, 60s right. even, who are the people who are presumably writing some bulk of what we would call experimental writing. But the people who are judging it are of an older generation. Alas, we're still all stuck with the same buying public, and that's really what, where I believe the trouble lies, and thank you for saying it from your side. Uh, yes, would you like to come to the microphone? Thank you. You know, I'm o amazed uh, that, Identify uh, yourself, please. I'm sorry, I'm Virginia Terrace, America poet. Uh, I'm amazed that the, um, there seems to be such an anxiety about trying to define what prose is and what poetry is to separate them. And I find in workshops that I've taught that this is one of the first questions that comes up. You know, what is prose, what is poetry? And after a lengthy discussion so that we can go on to more important issues of, you know, what make your what makes the poems before us expressive, um, I finally ended saying, what does it matter? You know, what does, it, what does the distinction matter? It seems to me the important thing is to tell the truth regardless of what form it takes. And I, I'd like to ask uh, the, uh, I'd like to address this to the, to the uh, panel. Uh, you know, regardless of form of identification, what, what's the importance of a question like this? I don't see that it's such an important question to All take right. so much time of a panel. The reason that the panel was formed was not so much to define either prose or poetry, but to discuss and maybe brood, uh, I hope with some result, over the fact that not so much as what they are, but that they might be exchanging their energies and qualities. It was the back and forth movement between poetry and prose that seemed to me at least to be of interest in an attempt to identify current, that means the last 35 years, American production. And I, I don't think we were here to try to define, Howard Nemiroff once said, def, people who want to define things usually want to put an end to them. Uh, I, I think we want to identify, and one of the kinds of identification that we're interested in is this notion of exchange. And I had thought, Virginia, that that was the sense of the occasion, not so much to, to, uh, to, to uh, set apart and cellulize uh, these, uh, these entities, but to discover how they might have passed over into each other in some possibly productive way. Does anyone on the panel want to speak to that more? Greg? I think she had a follow-up yes, question there. Yes, further. Richard, oh, Virginia, sorry. did you want to say more? Well, all discussions change and exchange. <laughs> David, Richard, Ignata. I want to address a question to you. Uh, how do you account for Baudelaire's attraction to the prose poem? Uh, I think that would reveal, your explanation might reveal some significant relationship between the prose poem and the society in which he was living at the time. <laughs> Won't you speak on it? Well, I won't quite, but I will say this in, in a sort of historical way, that Baudelaire had already written a great many of the poems that most of us recognize as poems, that is, the verse that constitutes that extraordinary volume called Flowers of Evil, or Les Fleurs du Mal, and that it was only well on in the development of his career as a versifying poet 
that he invented and devised and to some extent, as someone suggested, Rachel suggested, derived the notion, no one ever invents anything, the notion of the poem in prose. He never called it a prose poem, Kirk. He called it a poem en prose. And uh, he was much derided uh, from about 1853 on for undertaking such a thing. And uh, throughout the 19th century until very late in the day, um, such notions as the poem in prose were simply thought of as a kind of vulgar joke. And uh, it was uh, only much, well, well on into the century in the, in the high symbolist period, the, the years of Mallarmé and so forth, that we, we came to any kind of acceptance of the notion of the poem in prose. And then chiefly, chiefly in the French language, which has certain very specific, because of its own history of prosody, has certain reasons for being able to create what it called a poem in prose. Um, uh, there is a remarkable study of this matter by the um, young professor of French at Harvard, Barbara Johnson, who has more to say about poetry and prose than anyone else I've ever read, and I recommend you that. But I, 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 I do know that Baudelaire's impulse toward writing poems in prose did not proceed from some feeling of inadequacy of verse. He continued to write verse till the last day of his 47-year-old life. He also wrote poems in prose uh, for a specific period uh, and then uh, stopped. He felt that was a specific literary endeavor with a specific formal undertaking and, and not one that, uh, as it were, spilled over into the other, uh, other enterprise. Neither one for him uh, vitiated or indeed encouraged the other. They were separate devices. Sir. Uh, Willis Barnes down American Pen. Um, I'd like to take up that question of the publishers again quickly. Uh, once when translating a, a poem uh, Borges, Borges was unhappy about a half rhyme and off rhyme and said to me, try a little harder. And I think the publishers, despite all the wonderful editors that so many publishing houses have, should try a little harder. They try hard to make money because of the pressures, but they've m so often they have lost hope or belief that there is a reading public. There really is a reading public, and as a result, the smaller presses have taken that up who don't try quite so hard to make money. Now, admittedly, their pressures are different, but I really think we have to address those problems. They seem to me always to determine in a, as clearly as any kind of censorship, that is financial censorship, the kind of writings in all the arts, or the kind of arts that each uh, culture produces. No, 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 I'm sorry, Frank. Mr. Chairman, Frank Hercules is a novelist. With your permission, sir, may I address to Mr. Kirkpatrick Sale the following question. As you are aware, Mr. Sale, the late E.M. Forster prescribed for novelists, and I quote, expansion. That is the idea that the novelist must cling to not rounding off 
but opening up. As you're also aware, Foster propounded this doctrine some 60 years ago in the course of his Clark lectures at Cambridge University. Now, since you are yourself, Mr. Sale, a gifted writer who, fascinating, who fascinatingly impresses realism into the service of the literary imagination, despite the reservations you have so eloquently expressed here this morning, can you foresee a creative marriage between fiction and poetry as the begetter of that artistic opening up so earnestly visualized by E.M. Forster? I may say that I myself have in mind as a model, indeed a precedent, the chorale of the final movement of the Ninth Symphony of Beethoven that opens up in Foster's phrase, vistas of cloud-capped towers and gorgeous palaces as the habitation of the sisterhood and a brotherhood of humanity. I thank you, sir. No answer could possibly do justice to that magnificent <laughs> question. Uh, uh, I wish Mr. Hercules would answer it in his own inimitable style. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, the answer. Uh, briefly, in my mind, is no. That is to say, uh, I believe that uh, it could very well be the task of the novel uh, to delve into expansion. Uh, but it seems to me probably the task of the poem is to work in concentration. Uh, which says nothing about the length, of course, of either. We're not speaking of that. Uh, they both, of course, uh, should concentrate on the task of uh, only connect, uh, another phrase of uh, E.M. Forster's. But uh, I, I, would, I, I strongly believe, as you by now can tell, that uh, these are different art forms useful for uh, different kinds of purposes uh, and explorations. Yes, you have been very patient, sir. Right. Uh, Michael Morrissey from New Zealand. I'm a short fiction writer and a poet. Uh, I'd like to say a few unpleasant things this morning. Um, I think the trouble with uh, American writing today is that it might be so is the trouble with America generally is that they believe they're a literary superpower uh, phrase, which I owe to Mr. Um, Enzenberger from Germany. Um, this is particularly uh, saddening in the sort of feminist field today. The feminists claim to be very revolutionary, but when you look at their writing, of course, it's totally conservative and it's totally derived from male models. No. For instance, the um, Grey Wolf series, which I've just bought here with writers like Anne Beatty and uh, Bobby Ann Mason and so on, clearly derive their techniques from people like Updike and Mr. Carver. Now, this new mood of conservatism is, of course, sweeping right across America in every possible way, and I want, I want to know what, 
um, what's the reaction of the panel to, the, to this movement? The same thing's going on in fiction because um, people like Donald Bartham have already been considered old farts. The fiction collective people no longer taken very seriously. Um, and there's this new mood, new cons uh, aesthetic conservative realism which is being spearheaded by these so-called feminist writers. Now, what's going to be done about it? <laughs> oh, um, thank you. Yes, thank you for your question. I, I, I think I'll let Cynthia speak to this. Ask well, first of all, you seem to be confusing feminist and female. Uh, I don't know how you arrive at your designations of those particular writers as feminist. I'm not sure what they'd say about it themselves. At least one of them is here and you might ask. Um, other than saying that, it, you're s I don't know what you've picked up that that makes you say that we see ourselves as the superpower of literature. In fact, if you ask many American writers, I'm sure they'd name a lot of non-American writers as among their most admired writers. I think this is, I think every statement you've made is provocative but uh, poorly based. And I have no more to say about it than that. Does, does anyone else on the panel want to speak to it? In that case, I'd like to ask for some more questions. Yes. Yu Guangzhong, poet writing in Chinese from Taiwan. Now, uh, we've heard uh, interesting comments on the mutual influence between prose and poetry. However, for the writers writing currently in Chinese in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and the Chinese mainland, there has been a greater mutual impact between poetry and lyrical essay. So that uh, some of our good poets are also good essayists. Mm -hmm. So my question is, is there in current American writing mutual influence between poetry and lyrical essay, if there is still such a thing in current American Thank writing? Thank you. Thank you. That's a <clears throat> very uh, striking formulation and one that I First of all, we have a lyrical essayist on the panel, Mr. Sale, and uh, uh, though he is not a poet, uh, I think he would like to address that question. Uh, we have a lyrical essayist on the panel. He is Richard Howard, uh, as a matter of fact. Uh, if, if only I could get my thoughts into essays, I wouldn't have to uh, write books that go on for 500 pages. Uh, uh, Richard. Just because I am not a published poet doesn't mean that I'm not a poet. True, uh, true, in fact, true. I, I, have, uh, I have written a great deal of poetry. Uh, I have uh, written a novel, in fact, uh, similarly unpublished. Uh, and I, for my own self, I think I feel very much uh, the way uh, Mr. Carver was speaking of it uh, as, as being uh, two or, in this case, three different sorts of enterprises. The, uh, the lyrical essay, though, though obviously influenced in some way from, from certain poetry that you read last night, is a different exercise from writing poetry, from writing fiction. Uh, and so for my own part, uh, I, I, I do not see uh, in, in my life that blurring. 
But, Richard, I do think you could really uh, answer that better Well, I, I would like to point out that we have writers that w over a considerable range, like Annie Dillard or, on the other hand, like Lewis Thomas, whom many of us regard, or, or an English writer who lives in America, Oliver Sacks, uh, whom we regard as lyrical in the sense that their prose uh, does more than either scientific or ordinary discursive prose. We feel that it catches up a kind of imaginative impulse um, that connects it for many of us uh, uh, as the Lauren Isley's prose sometimes does. And, and these gentlemen and, and Annie Dillard herself uh, also frequently write a, a kind of, I'm afraid, inferior poetry. But their, their finest poetry, their, their lyrical impulse is in their prose. And, and we have such a thing. There is a lot of what we would call in America the lyrical essay. It's some of the best writing that's been done and we have a great con condition for it. It, it, it con the convention that goes back to Thoreau and Emerson and the sermon. If there are no more comments from the, our very patient audience and our even more patient panel, I will uh, declare that the morning session is finished. Thank you very much for coming. for the panel.